Hi, everyone. I'm Jimmy Young, the host of In the Weeds. Joining me in studio today is a very special friend, David Rabinovitz. He is an expert not only on cannabis, but also on history and politics and all business. And he's been a very successful consultant in those areas. Don't look now, but it's a whole new world of weed out there. Pot is flower, it's Bruce Banner and Blue Dream. You've got bongs and dabs, resin and shatter, vaping and edibles, new terms, new strains, and new ways to use cannabis sativa, the plant. Some just made with CBD, and hemp has minimal THC. There's sativa and indica strains, and 100 chemicals, all legal in 10 states for adult use. There's a lot to get to know. Get used to it, folks, because it's legal in the Bay State and it's not going away. Neither is In the Weeds with Jimmy Young next. Revolutionary Clinics is just one of 49 medical cannabis dispensaries in Massachusetts, but there's a reason why it's one of the most popular. It's their patient-first philosophy. All day long, they teach, they educate, they communicate about this complicated plant called cannabis sativa. That's true. Whether you visit their Cambridge location in Fresh Pond at 110 Fawcett Street or at 67 Broadway in Somerville. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first. Thank you, you very much. Are you happy to be here? I'm happy to be here. I are, think you're being a little over generous on the description of my knowledge, but I'm still happy to be here. Well, you've got me fooled for years, so there you go. Thank you. Uh, we're going to continue our little conversation here, and then we're going to turn it into a little bit of a podcast and distribute it on a multitude of networks. And I can also take this opportunity to let you in on a little secret. The Cannabis Multimedia Network isn't going anywhere, but you're going to be able to call it something completely different. It's going to be called the Pro Cannabis Media Group, ProCannabisMedia.com. Pro Cannabis Media is what we do. It's how we always describe the Cannabis Multimedia Network. And now, when we describe our network, we're actually going to be telling you what that network is all about, which is a, a compilation of Pro Cannabis media sites and websites and people who have are like-minded when it comes to this new emerging media. And we've got a number of topics to talk about with David. And David, now we can just ignore the camera and come right back and make sure you speak directly into that uh, microphone a little bit closer so that way we Will can do. actually hit There you go. That way I don't have to adjust the volume and the, the levels as we move forward. Um, David, I want to ask you first off, and I know you are someone who studies this emerging industry. What are some of the myths about investing and putting your money into the cannabis industry? Because as you know, a lot of people are describing it as the wild, wild west. And hey, I'm going to get rich quick, so I'm going to invest in cannabis. You better do your homework before you start putting any money down. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. This is, uh, this is an industry where there is a complete disconnect between value and typical metrics like cash flow or earnings. Companies are no longer valued at multiples of what their cash flow is. They're now valued at multiples of future revenue. Think about an acquisition was announced about a week ago, a $117 million vape company, I believe it is, Cura. is going to be acquired yep. Cura. for about, I think it's $947 million. Correct, by Cura Leaf. That's right. Which is right here in Massachusetts. Correct. And that is the biggest U.S. merger of two cannabis companies in the United States. Well, I think Curaleaf is becoming the is either now or is becoming the largest US based operator. 
and that includes Acreage Holdings because, as we know, Acreage Holdings was just kind of uh, acquired by Canopy. And a strange deal that's caveat is, oh, when, when cannabis becomes, becomes federally legal, you get your three hundred million, or or they give you the three hundred million, then you get totally bought out, right. something like that. They're engaged. They're engaged. They're to engaged, and as soon as the parent says it's okay, the parent being the federal government, they'll get married. This isn't this. Has this ever happened in any business before? Where you have states where it's legally a product is legal, and federally it's illegal. I mean that just sets up the lawyers. By the way, end up being the ones that make the most money. Yep. Uh, there's never been an industry like this, right? You have prohibition from 1920 to 1933, I believe it was, and that was an industry that went underground, and then came back above ground. This is an industry that was, it was legal. It was being used for medicine. Right? right? It was legal. It was used for all sorts of things. Um, it became illegal, effectively, by 1937, and it has stayed illegal, though it has prospered underground. And I just read a case yesterday. I was on a plane, um, and I read about three guys in Connecticut that pleaded out to bringing in millions and millions of dollars worth of marijuana from the West Coast to the East Coast for distribution. It, it, it is a large business. The, the movie with Johnny Depp, Blow, which was a great movie. And there's a line from that movie where he says, I started off with uh, an associate's degree in marijuana and came out with a PhD in cocaine. Marijuana has always been a big business in the United States. Now we're taking it from below the table and bring it above the table, except we still have the federal government who's saying it's illegal. And they've made these little silos, these little tents, that they're saying if you're operating within there, it's not legal, but we're going to leave you alone. Right? It's <laughs> fascinating. It is a fascinating time to be in this. There's so many different ways to look at it. You know, it's funny, you make a, uh, a reference to blow, and that kind of feeds what a lot of the uh, prohibitionists out there continue to, to say, oh, that cannabis stuff is a, is a gateway drug, you know? Um, you learn how to, you learn how to deal in cannabis, and then you'll be able to deal in cocaine and, and other hard drugs. We don't like to think that, and in fact, now, cannabis seems to be uh, positioning itself as an exit drug away from the opioids that are out there too, which is another opportunity in this business. So when you mention gateway, right, you're talking about gateway of you're dealing in marijuana, you can deal in other things, but let's talk about gateway the way it's normally discussed, which is you'll begin to use marijuana and then you'll progress to other drugs. First, the gateway theory was concocted for political reasons back in 1937. It's actually a fascinating story. I tell the story because you, you know all this stuff. Right? Not that you were around in 1937, but you read about it. Right. So I, I may get some of my dates wrong. I don't have all my notes in front of me. Yeah. But here's the way it effectively goes. Harry Anslinger yeah. was a bright, energetic, young Pennsylvania Dutchman. Went to work for the federal government in um, the State Department. Mm -hmm. And he had posts overseas, I believe, in Germany, Argentina, and I believe also in the Bahamas. And prohibition came into play, and he was doing some work on prohibition to prevent smuggling of Bahamian, Bahamian rum into the U.S., and he really liked that kind of action. So eventually he leaves the State Department, and he goes to work for the Department of State. And he's, and he's working on interdiction of, of um, alcohol coming into the U.S. 
Um, marijuana, and we only have a limited amount of time, but the, the history of marijuana and how it became a scourge had to do with the Mexican Revolution. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the U.S. sending soldiers down in Mexico, and then the U.S. Um, working down in the Panama Canal Zone, um, and studies that had come back done by the U.S. government, first by the British government, the, the, the hemp study over in India, and then a 1925 U.S. Army study that basically said it's not a big deal. But now it's coming over the border routinely, and there are people who don't like it, and they want marijuana criminalized, and the people it, that didn't like it, though, if I'm remembering correctly, is Hearst because he was in the forestry industry because he was a publisher. Well, yep, there's some that you know, there's some people that dispute that, but it was more along the borders because when you begin to look at when it became illegal, it started becoming illegal in like New Mexico, El Paso, California, then the whole state of Texas, Louisiana. That whole part of the country begins to make it illegal. It's coming up from Canada, and that's where it, the origin of the the origin of the word marijuana, which is slang, I believe, for evil weed. That may be that I don't know. These well, are the things that I picked that. up over so, the years. So okay, go ahead. So now, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. The marijuana problem was an immigrant problem. Oh, it boy. was. People fleeing the Mexican Revolution are coming over the border. They're being driven over here. And as they're coming, they're bringing their habits with them. And one of them is smoking pot. Mm -hmm. right? And then Woodrow Wilson sends 5,000 troops down in, in to, to chase Pancho Villa around. And at the end of the day, the U.S. military would kick back and smoke a cigar. And at the end of the day, the Mexicans would kick back and light up some weed. And eventually, it... it the, the U.S. soldiers start picking up on those habits and bring it back. Um, there's a point where the anti-marijuana crowd says to Harry, oh, we're, we're, prohibition is wearing out, mm -hmm. right? But we're going to start up with something called the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And the Federal Bureau of Narcotics interests Anslinger, and he puts his hand up and he says, I want to run it. And Anslinger becomes the first director of the new Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And he's going to go after heroin and cocaine. Those are the two scourges that he's after. Mm -hmm. And there are groups that are saying, take on marijuana. And he made a, a quote, something to the effect of, marijuana grows like dandelions in roadside ditches. You might as well try to stamp out crickets. Who wants nothing to do with it? 1929, federal government's running a 700-something million dollar surplus because we used to be fiscally responsible. Mm -hmm. By 1932, we're running a $2 billion deficit because of the Depression. Congress has to look around, and they need to do some belt tightening. And think about where we are as a society today with marijuana. And by that point in time, that's where we were as a society with respect to alcohol. It had been illegal for over 10 years. People were tired of it, and they wanted prohibition pushed out the door. So now they're looking at places they can tighten the belt, and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics comes up on the radar. Anslinger doesn't want to lose the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and overnight there is a scourge that is destroying the United States and the fabric of our society called marijuana. And marijuana becomes the gateway to cocaine and heroin. Mm -hmm. And that was the founding of the gateway drug theory. Mm -hmm. It all had to do with a guy who says, I need to save my institution, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and I need a new villain to do that. 
There you go. And that's kind of how it all started. And I certainly know that uh, Hearst was the money behind that because they feared the hemp industry back then. They did not. They saw that as a um, as a threat to their timber world. Well, yeah. What you're talking about are the the um, the publishers. Uh, no, it, you're talking about. Um, it, it's believed that Dupont was behind funding the the movie Reefer Madness. Yep. And if anybody has heard of that movie and they haven't seen it, I haven't seen it. But go onto YouTube and find the original trailers for Reefer Madness. Right. And it, then understand that that is the movie that convinced the American public right. as to how horrible marijuana was. And I won't get into the racial undertones because for those who don't know me, they could take it the wrong way. But it was a lot of it was they used um, a lot of racial issues yep. to scare people right. as to how bad marijuana was and what it was going to do to them. And the belief at the time was there was a 1916, I think, and like I told you, I, I could be wrong on some of the dates. The federal government came out with a report that said that hemp fiber might actually be better for making paper than wood chips right. than pulp. Right. Hearst had eight hundred had all the newspapers and eight hundred thousand acres of timber, right. and it takes a while to grow a tree. Hemp plants they grow in a season. They grow like weed. Oh, it looks like a weed. I had to do it. So <laughs> what you had was the the belief was that Hearst was against hemp mm -hmm. because he saw it as a threat to his eight hundred thousand acres of exactly. timber, and that. Um, um, Mm, I'm trying to remember, if, I think it was Mellon, mm -hmm. who had become the Secretary of the Treasury, yep. had a lot of money invested with DuPont, and that cordage, right, which is hemp fiber, was going to be the only major threat to nylon. There you go. And that DuPont, and the, and, and the, the let's call it the urban legend for mm -hmm. now, because mm -hmm. while I've read about it, and it does seem very logical, I've read other articles that say that it is, in fact, concocted, um, and you can't prove it one way or the other. But the, the, the legend is that you had DuPont on one side, you had Hearst on the other, and they were pushing at the federal level for marijuana to be illegal um, with the Secretary of Treasury, who had put a lot of money into DuPont, who had an economic interest. Hmm. There you go. And that's a little history lesson. And let's bring us to the modern day, because what's happening now is there's a lot of different alphabet soup federal um, groups like the uh, ABC, the Alcoholic Beverage Commission, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and the DPH, the Department of Public Health, all can't figure out who's going to be in charge of not just the new cannabis world, but the CBD that's being extracted from the cannabis sativa plant and put into a lot of these products, whether they be lotions or other topicals that are uh, relieving pain and making people feel better because the CBD, that cannabidiol, um, is an anti-inflammatory component of the cannabis sativa plant. And of course, for all those people out there who can't figure out what's the difference between hemp and cannabis sativa, they're both the same plant. It's that there is a THC component that is less than 0.3% non-intoxicating in the hemp plant as opposed to the other plant that has the THC and can cause intoxication, which a lot of people have enjoyed and preferred and is now legal in 10 states. That being said, David, 
what is going to happen in your idea, in your mind, what's going to happen now that the Farm Act has come in and supposedly CBD is legal? Well, it's not really legal yet, correct? So, right. So I'm not a plant expert, so I won't comment on that, but um, I'll give you the following observation. The Department of Justice in 2009 recognized that states were beginning to legalize marijuana for medical purposes in violation of federal law. And I will give the DOJ a lot of credit. I believe the um, uh, Deputy Attorney General's name was David Ogden, who started out by writing a memo to inform all of the local district um, attorneys what the DOJ's policy would be as to marijuana. And it was, we're not going to start ripping cancer patients out of their homes we're not really interested in going after smaller operators who are in compliance with state law. Um, we need to figure out where to focus our resources. We're not telling you what to do and not do, but we're giving you some guidance from on high as to how we think we should view the marijuana sector. Mm -hmm. That gave kind of an umbrella of protection. Two years later, James Cole wrote a memo, mm -hmm. and the Cole memo... Everybody refers to it as the Cole Memo. It's actually a series of three memos that he wrote. And ultimately, in the second, I think it was the second memo, he outlines, the first or second Cole Memo outlines eight enforcement priorities. And they basically said, if somebody's operating in compliance with their state law and there's a good regulatory system, we don't want to go after them. It's not an effective use of our limited federal resources. But we do want to go after criminal enterprises, people who are diverting marijuana, and they listed eight enforcement priorities. So it doesn't matter who you are. We're after these eight priorities. But in general, if, you're an, if, you're, if it's an operator in compliance with the state regs, then they, should be in, they shouldn't be violating these enforcement priorities. And, and it built upon it from there. Unfortunately, while the Department of Justice sat up and said, we know it's happening. It's against the law, but here's how we're going to manage the process. The FDA appears to have kept blinders on. And the FDA just ignored the fact that people were infusing foods with THC or the CBD oil, which is non-THC, mm -hmm. um, and the products were coming out. I've traveled to Texas, and I've walked into gas stations and they have honey and CBD sticks that you can buy. Mm -hmm. There's tons of CBD products. The FDA didn't care. They just put blinders on and made believe it didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And then the farm bill was passed, and now all of a sudden they realize they're going to have to figure out how to regulate it. No sooner is the farm bill passed than Cureleaf, our Massachusetts large player, mm -hmm. announced a deal with CVS, where I think they're going to sell CBD products, and it was like 800 stores or so. Yeah, uh-huh. And then a week later, Walgreens announces a deal. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after that, the outgoing uh, leader of the FDA sends out a tweet that says, these companies may think they're going to do that, but they better rethink it because the FDA is in charge of it. And now I, the limited material I read about the FDA is they're now playing catch-up. The problem is they have limited resources, just like the Department of Justice. So they have enough resources to go after the big players and to slap the hands of CVS and Walgreens, and Rite Aid, and maybe Cureleaf, and the bigger companies. But on the small local level, I don't believe they have the resources necessary to try to go after everybody who's getting in that market. And everybody is. 
I was in a vitamin store the other day, and they have one of those cardboard displays mm -hmm. with all sorts of hemp products. Mm -hmm. I was down in Florida, in Pompano Beach, on Federal Highway by, by uh, Atlantic, and there is a CBD store right next to City National Bank's branch. Um, they can't do banking there, though. Or could they? They could if it's just CBD. I don't know. I think it's going to wait until the State <laughs> Banking Act goes through. Right. But just think about it, right? Um, Attorney General Barr, within the past couple of weeks, testified to Congress. He is not for marijuana legalization, but even less than than marijuana legalization is he, the disconnect that he likes is the disconnect between state and federal laws. So that's putting some real wind behind the Safe Banking Act and the States Act. Mm -hmm. so, and, and they expect to open up the banking industry to the cannabis world before the end of 2019. I say they are expecting, this is what I'm hearing from lobbyist groups out of Washington, including the NCIA, the National Cannabis Industry Association, the head lobbying group that has Mr. John Boehner um, on staff now working the halls of the, the Capitol. If you follow the daily report that's in Marijuana Moments, mm -hmm. where they track how many new sponsors the Safe Banking Act or the States Act has, yeah. they're going up. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they've got probably a third of the House is now sponsoring, um, I believe it's a Safe Banking Act. The D.C. climate for politics these days is not exactly the most conducive to um, getting both sides of the aisle to agree on something. And yet, in this particular case, you're seeing both sides of the aisle agreeing on the fact that we've got a mess here. We need to at least clarify what the laws are and allow the banks to get involved. Do you not see that happening, too? Oh, I, I absolutely. Think about it this way. Mitch McConnell has brought home to Kentucky the hemp, the farm bill that mm -hmm. now makes hemp legal. Mm -hmm. and, and Kentucky was a big producer of hemp before mm -hmm. it became illegal. That's great. Right? They can go back to farming hemp. They just need to make sure they got a place to put the money. Or a place where they can bring it outside of Kentucky over state lines, because that happened recently, and a truck got pulled over, and it got, yeah. uh, got all messy. And, of course, now it's interesting that the federal government sets a rule and then has to realize what the, how that rule is going to work in reality. Yeah, there's never been an industry in the U.S. that has been illegal at the federal level legal at the state level, so now a truckload of legal, what you would think would be legal hemp, right? Right, gets they, stopped. They, it gets stopped, and it gets stopped transporting itself through a state where it's not legal, Right. and they seize the product, and the guy goes to court, and he proves that what he had was, he, he insists, he gets an order that they have to release the test results. Test results show it's not marijuana, it's hemp. Right. Right. Which, by the way, it looks very much the same. Right. But it's not marijuana, it's hemp. It doesn't have the psychoactive component. This is going to be for CBD oil or many other things that hemp can be used for. Mm -hmm. And they used to make, if I recall, they, there was a point where they were using hemp to make automotive panels. Correct. Right. And pens. The pen that Mitch McConnell signed yep. the Farm Bill was made out of hemp. Right. You can take, um, I read articles five, six years ago that, that they, you take the hemp, you mix it in with concrete, and you have hempcrete, which is supposed to be much stronger than conventional concrete. Right? Concrete in and of itself is not very strong. It can withstand a lot of weight, which is why when you see buildings going up, you always see those steel bars, the rebar. Right. The rebar gives the structure its strength 
the concrete gives it the ability to hold all that weight. Yeah. The two of them together, but apparently you mix hemp fiber in with concrete, it can give it a lot of um, lot more strength. So now they stop this truckload. They finally get they sue to get the the test results released, and it's hemp. And the guy says, "I want my truck back, and I want my goods back." And the state said, "No, because hemp's not legal here." It, 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 so there's a big mess going on because of something that they the the government passed and didn't do their homework on it before they passed that bill. I, I don't know if I would say that. I mean, at the federal level, they made it legal, and now you got issues at state levels where it may be legal, it may not be illegal. And if it wasn't for that, there wouldn't be guys like you on the radio having people who actually want to hear about it, and there wouldn't be guys like me out selling advice on it. Right. So, <laughs> That's you know. So, that, again, and, and you're of the opinion that the longer it takes to make this thing legal, the better it is because... For smaller business, absolutely. Yeah. Right? It, it, and tell me why, because you, we get the idea about big business eventually is going to get involved. You look at the highest levels right now with um, uh, canopy growth, acquiring acreage, and again, that's a uh, you know same thing going on with Curaleaf buying Cura Holdings, I think is the company that they right. bought too. Uh, so follow the money, because money dictates where the investments are going to go. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. And, but, um, and we can go on for... We can go on for a much longer period of time on some of this, but think about the Boston Globe Spotlight story that talked about the right. layers of entities mm -hmm. that are hiding who actually owns the licenses. And as I understand it, the Cannabis Control Commission is now wrestling with how they're going to unwind that to figure out who really holds licenses. Because there are license holders who are bragging in public reports up in Canada, as well as municipal meetings in Massachusetts, that they control, as an example, 11 stores in a state where you can only control three. Right. Right. And, and again, There's a lot of positioning yeah. because people want to control more stores than they're legally allowed. And how do you grow a big company if you can only have three stores in one state, a few stores in another one? Right. right. Especially now when you only have 10 legal states, even though you have over 40 medical uh, cannabis states. Right. But we've passed one of the tipping points. If marijuana was going to become legal, it had to be done by the people. They had to get signatures, they had to force it on the ballot, mm -hmm. and the people had to vote it in, mm -hmm. which is what happened in Massachusetts in 2016. And that was the kick that the people that we hire to do these things for us, called legislators, needed to actually do their job and create a law to serve the will of the people. So the legislators went back and rewrote the marijuana law in Massachusetts. If you look at what's going on nationally and the bills that are out there and the states that are considering it, New Hampshire, Connecticut, New York, these are not voter initiatives. These are legislative initiatives. Right. They're now crafting the laws, and the, legislatures, the legislators state by state are now deciding what they want to do about it. So we've... we've Past the point where to make marijuana legal, you have to stand in front of the supermarket and collect signatures all day on Saturday. It's now being debated at the legislative level, so and it's it, progressing forward. And 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 what I'm hearing about New Jersey and New York is because the legislature couldn't figure out how to do it, they feel like it has to go back to the ballot box in 2020, and 
therein lies the ability for the people to be heard because once the people do get involved with it and over 63 percent according to the last poll that i saw by the pew research group uh, agree that it should be federally legal uh, you expect that the voters will vote legal wherever whatever state they're in and then it goes back to the legislature again to interpret the vote and create processes and commissions like we have here in Massachusetts, and it's taken two years even before they were able to launch their first adult use dispensary. So we're still a long way to go here, no matter who initiates the, the, the change. Right, but bear, so let, let's break that down a little bit. We have the federal laws. Then a state may decide that they're going to legalize marijuana. That's a state law. It could be a voter initiative or it could be done legislatively. Then they'll, they'll shift it over to a department that they'll charge with the task of creating the regulations. And they'll create the draft regulations, they allow for public comment, and that becomes the rules of how the industry will function within the state. Those are the regulations. Then at the local level, it may also allow that the local municipality has some sort of a say. And the municipality may be able to create their own ordinances around this, which um, having nothing to do with marijuana or another project I worked on a couple of years ago caused me to take a jump in to understand what's the difference between your local laws and your department laws and your state laws and its laws, regulations, ordinances, and the way they stack together to create the framework that you have to operate under. And if you don't understand it, walking into it, it's kind of murky. Gotcha. And I'll tell you what, speaking of murky, pretty much everything having to do with the cannabis world right now is a little murky because there's just, you've got the states and, and the feds trying to figure out who's in charge, what the rules are. I'll tell you, the, the only winners in this whole thing, and as you, you know, you've talked about before, is that the margins uh, of you're going to open up a, a cannabis shop, it's not going to be as lucrative as you think because the margins are so small based on the regulations you have to follow. Um, the lawyers are going to be the big winners in this because they're going to be getting paid to interpret these laws and the mess that it is. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of winners, though. I, I just read an article the other day that was talking about cultivation, and it was one of the major cultivators with with a facility in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. and the, Is that Greenleaf by any chance out in Holyoke by any chance? Is that the one? No, but, okay. but putting aside who it was. Yeah. It, if I had all... Uh, Typically, Jimmy, I just happened to drop in this morning. I know, and, and I say, put you on the mic, I put you so, on the spot, and we so, started a so show, and that's just how and, I am. And I don't have a problem with that. It's okay. just I don't want to get real specific because right. I like to be precise. Yep. So this was one of the major players, and they create space that they lease to cultivators. And there was something in the article about, I believe it was the CEO making a comment about, we get these places up and running, and based upon the, the various cuts we get plus the rent, we look at a one-and-a-half-year payback. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a lot of money. Right. Uh, you have to be in the right part of the industry to see the biggest margins. Well, you've got to be at the right part at the right time. Everybody thinks that marijuana is the nirvana for making money. There's businesses that do go out of business in the marijuana sector. And aside from that, what, what most people don't want to acknowledge Marijuana, at the end of the day, is an agricultural product. Right. And I have this informal test I've done with you and folks in your office that I've been doing since October. 
what's your favorite fruit? And that's rhetorical right now. Yeah. And I'll ask that question to people. And really what it boils down to is if somebody says, I like apples or I like grapes, and I say, what brand? And they can't answer that. Right. right? The most that people can tell me on brands of fruit are Dole, Del Monte. Tropicana? Um, well, Tropicana or orange juice, right, but it's right. already been processed. Yep. Uh, at the, it, marijuana is a flower? Yep. Cannabis, sativa, is the flower. Okay. But as the flower, yes. like a tobacco leaf, it's going to be important what it is. But as soon as you begin to extract out the oils and do all the other things that you want to do to create uh, an ingredient that's going to be infused into another product, that's going to be put into a patch, that's going to be a part of an o a lotion, or it's going to be a bath bomb, whatever it is. Or a brownie. Yeah. Yep. But now what you have is a commodity product. And when you have a commodity product, think about milk, right? You've got hood milk, Gorelick Farms. They don't have all those cows. They're going around to smaller farms and, and through a process collecting all of that milk, which then they package and they sell under their brand. Marijuana is going to go the same way at some point. It's going to be the CBD oil is, it may be branded by somebody. Yeah, like Stanley uh, Brothers, uh, Charlotte's Web. Yeah, yeah, it may be branded by somebody, but where that hemp is going to be grown, let's say in Massachusetts, is going to be at farms all over the state, indoor and outdoor. Right. Um, and at that point, when it becomes a commodity, the prices begin to get compressed. The prices are fat now in part because there's so much confusion in the market. Mm -hmm. But as the confusion dissipates, and a lot of the confusion will dissipate when it gets rescheduled or descheduled, when it becomes legal at the federal level, then all of a sudden there's no, you don't need tour guides like us as much to navigate the market. Right. So, it, it, you know, there's, there's uh, positives to taking its time and getting it right once they finally get there. And we all know uh, locally here in Massachusetts, the Cannabis Control Commission is trying to get it right. Uh, but they continue to kind of hit roadblocks and, and they're still not sure. They want more guidance from the legislature about what they can do and what they can't do as they, as they grow. My goodness gracious, they've only been around, I think, for just over a year now. Uh, we've had over $100 million in adult use gross sales in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts since November 20th when it started last year. It's here to stay. What's fascinating to me as someone who's in the media who likes to hear stories and tell stories is there's so many different moving parts every single day in this industry that can affect history. And that's what fascinates me, and that's why I'm in it, and that's why I built this little pro-cannabis media group. And, and I appreciate the fact that you've decided to join us in some capacity in hosting a podcast that we're going to call Business and Politics of Weed with David Rabinovitz. How do, they get, how do people get to you? Because we do know the last time that you actually sat with me, people actually listened and then found you. So yes. how, how, do they, how do they find you? So you can find me on LinkedIn. It's the easiest way. you got to spell the name right. Yes. It's with a V. With a V. Not like Archie Bunker's attorneys. This one is with a V. And, <laughs> and that's probably not going to go over for a lot of the millennials. I was going to say, who the heck is Archie Bunker? If you're over the, unless you're over the age of, what, 
45 or 50, you're not going to know that's that right. reference. That's right. But uh, Business Politics of Weed, uh, David, it's, it's great to actually reconnect with you, have you in studio. We look forward to the future podcast, and I look forward to the day when I'm not in the host chair and you are. <laughs> well, we'll see if we get there, Jimmy, but thank you. All right, for David Rabinovitz, I'm Jimmy Young. This has been In the Weeds, a special edition for the brand new Pro Cannabis Media Network. Revolutionary Clinics is just one of 49 medical cannabis dispensaries in Massachusetts, but there's a reason why it's one of the most popular. It's their patient-first philosophy. All day long, they teach, they educate, they communicate about this complicated plant called Cannabis Sativa. That's true. Whether you visit their Cambridge location in Fresh Pond at 110 Fawcett Street or at 67 Broadway in Somerville. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first. In the Weeds with Jimmy Young is a video podcast produced by the Pro Cannabis Media Network for the entertainment and education of our audience. All opinions on this show should not be considered medical advice or reflect the opinions of the management of CLNS Media, C-Suite Network, Pro Cannabis Media Group, or its marketing partners.